Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. We get to have a dad conversation? I'm excited about that. <laughs> well, I have, I have already thought several times that, that it reminds me a lot of alpinism. Like, especially the breastfeeding during the night when you're just waking up at random times and you feel totally <laughs> busted, but you just roll out of bed anyway to, like, do the thing that you have to do. And, like, yeah. every every time I run out to the, the freezer in the kitchen in my underwear and it's all cold in the house and you're, you know, and it's, like, two in the morning and it's dark and I'm using a headlamp, all like, ah. I was like, this, this is what years of waking up in a tent prepare you for. Yeah, totally. It's all, it's all pretty hardcore. I'm like, oh, parenting. It's, like, it's hard to believe that everybody does this. Like, geez, it's so... Uh, this is, it's so this is where we all came from, right? It gives you a more appreciation for your for your mother and father. No, it, it, yeah, it really does. I've, I've never thought they were that badass, but now I'm like, man, they, they must have gone through a lot. <laughs> um, cool. Should we actually start the uh, the real interview? I'm sort of like, ah, like who wants to talk about alpinism and climbing when we could talk about dadding? <laughs> My name is Steve House. I'm originally from northeastern Oregon, a little ranching and cattle town called The Grand. When I was 11, I, I did my first single push ascent where I, I went to school, played a baseball game after school. We drove down to Mount Hood and we started climbing Mount Hood at midnight and got to the summit uh, for the sunrise. I was exhausted. I was like, oh yeah, I'll just start glissading down here and then on the Palmer Glacier. And it's a little bit steep, but I thought that I could stop, but I actually couldn't. And so I tried to self-arrest and I couldn't self-arrest and I actually lost my ice axe. And then like, I just started windmilling down the, the slope and eventually stopped myself just because it's like a really forgiving place. It just gets less steep eventually. <laughs> it wasn't like windmilling, like flailing through the air, but I was like, the contents of my backpack were spread out over a hundred <laughs> yards and I had to like walk back up and find all my stuff and my dad was all pissed off at me. <laughs> so I told him after that that I was never going to climb a mountain again. And and that was as an 11 year old. Yeah. Turns out Steve had short memory. Steve House is a renowned alpinist, probably one of the, the premier alpinists of his generation, probably best well known for his ascent of the RuPaul face on Nanga Parbat, though now equally known for his coaching business, uh, Uphill Athlete, and the, the books that he's written about, you know, performance. It's all, uh, I mean, what do you even call somebody who's just had that kind of an impact on the sport? Um, relentless. He's just a legend. Know, a, a guiding light, a luminary. Innovator. Yeah, I mean, he's just, you know, he's badass. So for decades, Steve pushed the limits of what could be done on alpine faces. These were big mountain features in the world's greatest ranges. Alex, could you give us sort of a sense of what it means to do an alpine-style ascent of something like the RuPaul face in the Himalaya? These alpine-style ascents of the biggest mountains in the world are so committing Actually, I, I think of, I think routes like that can be characterized as one-way missions to Mars or like one-way missions to the moon or you know things like that where you blast off and there's no easy way to retreat and you basically have to make it to the top. And I mean, you know, obviously it's not a one-way trip because you know they make it back down, but it's I feel like it's the same mentality where you're like really stepping into the unknown and you just have to make it to where you're going. 
and I think it's hard to overstate how committing it is to set off on a face like that with minimal equipment, no real opportunity for retreat because you have so little equipment and the face is so is technically difficult that you can't really down climb, you can't really repel. So you have to make it to the summit of the peak in order to descend off the other side. And compounded by the fact that these are peaks at altitude and so you're feeling the effects of elevation, you know, your own personal capabilities are diminished. It's all pretty hardcore to think that you're spending up to a week camping your way up this face with minimal, you know, like light kit, like light sleeping gear, light food, light stove, you know, sometimes not even those sort of bare essentials. I mean, I can't imagine anything more committing. He gave his entire attention and focus to this sport. It defined him. It was his entire professional life. It was how he organized his world. He was an iconic figure who seemed poised to finish out a career as a sponsored athlete. Then, in April of 2021, in a series of Instagram posts, Steve explained that he was done with elite climbing. He gave up his 22-year-long relationship with clothing company Patagonia. He and his family packed their bags, moved to Europe, and embarked on a new chapter of life. It seemed sudden, but in truth, this decision was more than a decade in the making. You know, it really started for me because of this accident I had uh, when I was 39 and I I almost died and I barely made it out of there. Breath, I, I had a hemonomothorax and my lungs were collapsing due to the pressure from all the internal bleeding. And uh, I had those two hours to think about, okay, if today is the last day of your life, how do you feel about it? Today we talked to Steve House, the famed alpinist, retired professional climber, author and founder of Uphill Athlete, and we talked to him about his path forward from the moment that he lay dying on Mount Temple. We spent the entire season trying to better understand the risks that climbers take, and it seemed like we had one last question. How do you let go? How do you walk away? And what do you gain? (laughs) That's actually like three questions. So we've got a lot of them. Here we go. I'm Alex Arnold. I'm Fitzcahal. You're listening to Climbing Gold. How did you start climbing? We actually had a really active climbing community in the Grand. Like we, we, I was in the Boy Scouts, uh, and we did a bunch of climbing. Uh, partially because my dad was a, a climber and he was involved with a lot of my activities, so he would help organize, you know, climbing weekend with the scout troop. And and then in high school, we actually had a climbing club, this club called Cliffhangers, and we did. Um, trips every spring break we did a one-week trip and every fall we did a one-week trip usually either to the city rocks or smith rock that's so cool i wish my high school had something like that that's that's surprising too because that's a long time ago i mean i feel like climbing wasn't even as popular then oh yeah no it was i mean it was you know i graduated from high school in 1988 so we're talking 85 86 87 88 and you know we were leading uh, there was no bolted routes, you know, it was all trad, obviously. We didn't have any front, we didn't have any cams, um, mostly because of the price. 
my senior year, I bought one cam uh, for this particular route called Hesitation Blues at Smith Rock. It was a 10B that I wanted to do. And I got up there and I, I, the cam was too big. <laughs> to <fit. laughs> so I whipped onto the fixed piton that was below it. But um, anyway. After graduating from high school at 18 years old, Steve went to Yugoslavia, which is now Slovenia, in 1988. It was part of a student exchange. About a month after he arrived, he was introduced to the local climbing club. And the Slovenians, when it comes to climbing, are kind of badass. They had a deep climbing history and culture, and it was completely life-changing for Steve, who found himself immersed in it. So did the, the Slovenian style of climbing uh, influence your vision for alpinism? Oh, completely. It completely shaped it, yeah. Because I never experienced American alpinism before. Like, that was, like, so that year I was at the club, I actually took a course uh, where I became a certified alpinist. There's actually a thing. Uh, and it was important to do that because that's how you got invited on expeditions. You couldn't get a, a, invited to go to the big mountains if you didn't have this. Um, and usually it takes two years, but I had some previous climbing experience and I think that they cut some corners to help me, help me along. But, um, I just literally like that was, that was my whole, that is still my concept of alpinism. It always has been. And, and spell that out for me. Like, what is that vision of alpinism? So there's two different ways to answer this question. The simplest way i think the most more descriptive way is the physical way which is you know to me it's about climbing a, a the most beautiful aesthetic technical line you can to a difficult to reach summit um and it ideally involves all components of climbing like it involves everything that's the best best kind but to me, it's more, you know, if I answer that question for myself, it's much more of a, I, I would say alpinism is the art of expressing yourself in the mountains. And that's a pretty broad definition and it allows for a lot of uh, individual interpretation because I think it's not just a physical expression, but it's also an emotional expression. It's an intellectual expression in many cases. And it uh, encompasses the whole whole being, the whole team's being, not just not just. I mean, obviously, in some cases, it could be just one person, but usually, it's usually two or three. What do you remember about those early years? I mean, you were you were like all over some of the world's biggest ranges by the time most people are starting to think about what they want to do with their lives. Like you, you got after it. I was super hungry. Yeah. But you know, and I was, I had a little Mazda pickup and I went climbing and if I got money, I used to spend on going climbing and that was, that was it, you know, but things were cheaper back then. My first expedition to the Himalaya was $800. <laughs> really? I was just yeah. about to say that it's not that easy to do those types of expeditions back to back because they're too expensive. But but I guess you're saying that at the time it wasn't quite as extreme. No, I mean, the you know, the OK, so that was with a Slovenian group with 18 people on it. And one of the reasons there's 18 people on it was to make it really cheap. You know, and we didn't we didn't do all the fancy stuff you do now. Like we didn't hire a cook like we went to Raul Pindi and like bartered for like 400 kilos of potatoes by ourselves. Like and then we got them in these big burlap sacks and put them on a public bus and, you know, spent five days traveling by a public bus and then, you know, hitchhiked on a tractor. I mean, it's just like 
you know, I don't even do that anymore. I mean, I don't go on expeditions anymore, but I, I haven't done that kind of expedition in a long time. But, you know, thing, you could just, you could just do that then. And you, I mean, I guess you, I guess you still could do a lot of that now, but. I, I didn't really, I've never really heard about dirtbag expeditions like that. I didn't really realize that, that people were doing that. So on that expedition, we flew out of Zagreb and we had a, flew to Zagreb and from Zagreb to Frankfurt, we had like a 24 hour layover to save weight, like we all wore our plastic double boots and some of the guys had taken the, the ropes and we and before they got dressed, we coiled ropes around each other and then put like on, a, on, on like a, a shirt with a tight belt. So you're basically like wearing the rope. <laughs> that is, that is so And then, you know, we'd, br heinous. we'd bring like these little bags, you know, stuff bag kind of things. And then, you know, once you got through security and then the thing you'd go, take out the rope and coil it up and shove it in the bag and use it as your carry-on but you know you'd gotten through you know things were things were different back then you said that you had three big uh goals in the himalaya three big faces that you want to climb what, what were they yeah so i i thought of my climbing career um i don't know how other people do it or my climbing goals i should say um in terms of kind of regions, like I had things I wanted to do with the Canadian Rockies, I had things I wanted to do in Alaska and, and the Himalaya and so on, and the Alps. And, and so in the Himalaya, it was, uh, you know, the RuPaul face, uh, west face of Makalu, the west face of K2. I think climbing is a little bit like painting in that you can either paint what's in your mind or you can't. <laughs> and it's one thing to have goals like that in your mind. But if you can't physically and psychologically and, uh, and emotionally express them against, you know, the backdrop of, of the mountain environment, then it's just, it's just an idea in your head. So that process is really the, the process of just being a climber to me, of just being an alpinist. Like those goals were not set when I was like 19. You know, those goals evolved as I, as I, as my capacity grew over a couple of decades of trying to be as good as I could be, you know, trying to paint as well as I could paint. It's actually one of the things I think that, um, I think about as in terms of my, my, my climbing, because I really do think of it in terms of an art, like feeling as if an, an artist in terms of expression and you know i'm a little jealous of painters that just get better until their dying day in most cases right like and 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 we are as athletes uh, with the athletic component you know we are we're time limited it's just a reality we just are and so um it's important to i think develop other things like that's one of the one of the reasons I've chose to try to write a lot is I think that that's that's a way that I can try to you know I probably have some more you know books in me that aren't necessarily climbing books I have some more expressions in me that that, uh, that I want to share uh, with the world eventually and um, yeah that's just part of part of life After the break, we return to a ledge on the snowy face of Mount Temple. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, 
which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete-tested and expedition-proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next-generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. Their Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. (laughs) I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing training and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Coros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. If alpinism was like painting for Steve then perhaps the ultimate expression was the Rupal face on Nanga Parbat. Located in the western Himalaya, Nanga Parbat's summit clocks in at 26,660 feet, making it the ninth highest mountain on the planet. The Rupal face, which rises nearly 15,000 feet, that's like five L caps from the valley floor, has long been considered one of the ultimate prizes in Himalayan climbing history. Steve and his partner, Vince Anderson, made one of the most remarkable ascents in history, climbing the face in alpine style, that is in a single push without oxygen, in about eight days round trip. For their ascent, the duo was awarded the prestigious PLA Dior, the highest achievement in alpinism. It also cemented Steve's place as one of the greatest climbers of his generation. In the ensuing years, Steve continued his work as a professional climber and a mountain guide. He got married, He wrote a book about his life and climbing, and he also just kept doing hard, difficult, dangerous routes in the mountains. And this brings us to the crux of Steve's life, and really maybe the central point of season three of Climbing Gold. Is there a time where climbing just doesn't make sense anymore, where the risk doesn't become worth it? And how do we make that shift? We all have our own path with these decisions. It's oftentimes very personal, series of choices. And for Steve, that path started as he lay slowly dying on the north face of Mount Temple. March 2010. Steve and his longtime climbing partner Bruce Miller were thousands of feet up the north face of Mount Temple, one of the most iconic mountain walls in the Canadian Rockies. In some ways, this was just another day in the mountains for Steve. Then, the rock crumbled beneath his feet, instantly he was falling. And I fell about 25 meters, about uh, 80 feet. And I didn't hit a ledge uh, because the roots were really steep, but I slammed back into the wall and I fractured a bunch of ribs. I broke my pelvis in a couple of places. I did not hit my head at all. I had no extremity injuries, no uh, arms and legs were fine. Miller was able to call for help. But it would take a few hours for the rescue helicopter to arrive and pluck the climbers off the wall. In the meantime, Steve, injured badly, 
was alone with his thoughts. It took about two hours for them to mobilize and get there, even though, you know, it was only like whatever, 20 air miles away from where the helicopter was sitting. Those kind of things don't happen every day. It was also winter, it was March. And I knew that, you know, that I had massive bleeding internally and I was losing breath. I had a hemonemothorax and my lungs were collapsing due to the pressure from all the internal bleeding. And I, I could really tell, like I was really having a, a hard time breathing. And uh, I had those two hours to think about, okay, if today is the last day of your life, how do you feel about it? What is, what is good? What is not so good? What would you... because of the shock and so forth, I wasn't really in a lot of pain. And, you know, I thought, you know, if I die today, I can be happy with my climbing. I did a lot of climbing. I dedicated a lot of time. I, for my Himalayan career, there was uh, three big things I wanted to do, and I'd only done one of them. I had not had a family, and that was the first time I realized I really had wished I had had a family. And then the other piece that was really big for me was that uh, I have accomplished a lot, but I have done so by being very selfish and making very self-centered decisions. And, 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 and that's not a judgment, it's just a statement because to excel in anything, if your goal is to be the best, your best self in anything, you know, that's what it takes, that's what it is. You don't like do what you did without having that mindset. That's just part of it. And that, at that point felt like, you know, I didn't get to the part where I got to give back. I didn't get to the part where I got to help other people. Um, I didn't get to the part where I got to um, contribute to solving, you know, to being a force for good in this world beyond just, you know, climbing another route which, you know, I think we can all agree it doesn't really make an iota of difference. I don't even know where to start. In some ways, it's almost like too neat. I mean, like, did you really just have, you know, one experience like that where you sort of reevaluate and then, you know, I feel like the, the, the reality of life is always messier and a little more tumultuous and, and just harder. It's just never that simple. You know, I'm like... Because surely, you know, as you rehab from the accident, you must have at least thought, you know, like I could probably squeak in a few more cutting edge climbs, you know, or like there's that one thing that got away and I'm sure I could do it because I have the skills and, you know, and, and if I'm careful about it, I'm sure I can get this last one in or, you know, how do you nip those things in the bud? Totally. I went to Makalu three more times after that accident. So after the accident round, but you're absolutely right, Alex. I mean, you know, I'm compressing a bunch of stuff for, I mean, how much time do you have? <laughs> I mean, I, I assume that the, the gradual untangling of high end climbing with, with like your personal life must take a while. Like, you know, at some point I'm sure I'm going to do the same thing where I sort of start to unwind from the, from the like extreme climbing and, and I don't know, but then you have, you know, somebody like Walter Bernati, you know, who went from like the most cutting edge climber in the world to a photojournalist in the, the span of one climb. And it's like some people just walk away from it. And 
I can't really imagine doing that because I just love climbing. I love the day-to-day of climbing so much. And so I'm assuming that for me, it'll be a long, slow spectrum where I just notice that I do fewer cutting edge things in a year and just slowly, like gradually transition to just kind of like climbing for fun. But I, I don't know. I mean, you know, where were you on that spectrum? Yeah. Well, I, I think maybe it's worth saying I, um, I'm very much a recreational climber and skier and I, I, I go climbing and backcountry skiing all the time. Like, you know, and I always will. Like, I'm not like a Bonatti type that is going to just not climb again. Like, like I said, I'm a mountain person. But to get back and rewind a little bit, this whole issue around kind of unwinding my identity as an alpinist um, was, was absolutely the hardest thing I've ever done. And it took years, you know, it, it took a bunch of time and I stepped away from all professional climbing, uh, right after my 50th birthday. What, what yeah. Why was that? I mean, I, I saw the announcement and everything I saw, you know, your rationale, but what's, well, there's a real influence as professional climbers T which is a word, a term that honestly didn't exist when <laughs> for most of my life, right? Like, and I still kind of choke on a little bit, but um, I hate to break it to you, Alex, but you can never climb another pitch for the rest of your life and you could be a professional climber till you're 90 because of what you've done in the last 15 years. You know, you could. Like, that also probably does not sound exciting at all, right? Yeah, exactly. That doesn't That doesn't sit well, though. You know, like I, I wouldn't, yeah, I, I wouldn't be proud of it. And, you know, it's hard to be a real professional if you're not proud of what you're doing. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And so that's where, that's where for me, exactly where the, the impetus came from. Um, and while it seems like these things, I think this is true with a lot of kind of public service announcement kind of stuff, you know, it may seem like, oh, Steve decided yesterday to to stop being a professional climber. Like that's actually, you know, I was working f- towards that for more or less 10 years. <laughs> I was getting myself into the position where I could live and support my family with a basic, you know, middle-class income to, so I could do that. Like, so I could be free of that and then do truly only what I wanted to do and not have to do what anybody else wanted me to do. After the break, we talk through the process of letting go. Element is a zero sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Wood Barrel Bourbon Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, 
to help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I choose. They're offering new customers 20% off any purchase with the code CLIMBINGGOLD. Or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. When talking about managing risk in the mountains and, you know, in your case, sort of handling an entire career, you know, a whole life of climbing in the mountains and managing risk, it's like, what do you do with the just sheer randomness of it? You know, it's like, because, you know, we both have lost a lot of friends in accidents that are seemingly random and like there's no, there's often no real rhyme or reason. And, and sometimes, you know, you try to justify it in different ways where you're like, well, you know, conditions weren't perfect. But a lot of the time, it's like, the climber couldn't realistically have known any different and they just, you know, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so, you know, like how, how do you live with that? Like, how do you manage those risks? You know, I think it's like, I mean, I think you can actually make a blatant statement about all risk. You learn as much as you can about what those risks are and what causes them and what signs there are for them. And I mean, you know, there's, Climbing is full of analogies we could make along those lines and, and snow sports and so on. And, you know, then then you make really uh, careful judgments about when, you know, you, you know, of course you think they're careful judgments, but actually they're just well-educated guesses. And then you acknowledge that they're well-educated guesses. And at the end of the day, like you decide how big of a buffer you, you want to have. And that's what I say like now how I consider myself like to be like a very recreational, like I need a really big buffer. Like I'll even do things like, you know, here in the Alps, like if I'm climbing something and there's just too many people around, I'll just go somewhere else. Like I'll just bail. Like, cause it's like, nah, there's, there's too many people. Like one of those people could knock a rock off. It's just too many things out of my control. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Like I'm going to go, go, go down and go have a coffee at the, at the hut or whatever. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of times in my life where, and I'd be curious if you can relate to this. I suspect you can, where, you know, you're like cutting out pretty fine. You know, like, it's like, yeah, I think we can do it. And I think we can survive. I'm not sure, <laughs> but I think we can. And I think it's better than 50% chance. So I'm going to do it, you know, so that kind of thing. And I think that there's a lot of, there is a lot of randomness to, to risk. And, you know, there's also a lot of randomness to life. You know, one of my closest friends, you know, died of cancer when he was like 35 years old too. You know, it's like, I think it's easy to get cynical about these kinds of things and to kind of oversimplify them because ultimately everybody has to make their own choices uh, that they can, you know, live with and sleep with and justify to themselves and to their loved ones. But I think that it's really important for people taking risks, whatever kinds of risks those are, to be really uh, honest with themselves about what it is that they're putting on the line. And if it's your life and be really honest about what kind of hole that would leave if, if it's, if you're not there anymore. Did, did you do that while you were alpine climbing though? I mean, when you're like in a tent on, on a snowy ridge in the middle of nowhere, like, I mean, were you actually thinking about what it would mean to your family and, and friends if, if you just disappeared in the mountains like that? I did the opposite. 
I like created this mental construct about how I didn't matter to anybody. Yeah, that, that, that's funny because that's exactly what I've always done too, where I'm like, you know, it's like there's 7 billion people on earth. What's it going to matter if I disappear? You know, my wife and I have talked about that a fair amount. And, you know, she obviously never likes this whole train of conversation. But I'm kind of like, you know, if if I die, like she's a catch, you know, like she'll do fine. She'll find somebody else. Like, <laughs> you know, she's especially now she's like a super hot mom. You know, I'm like, she's, <laughs> she's, she's doing fine. I'm kind of like, you know, I think you could find find better, you know, and, and she and she finds that sort of offensive. And, and obviously she's not really into it. And But I'm like, there are a lot of people on Earth. It's like, do we need all of them? You know? Yeah, but there's only one you, you know, and, you know, you're only meaningful to the people that love you. And, you know, there's a 7 billion people roughly that we don't know that are not meaningful to us, but they're sure really meaningful to each other. And um, I think we do that, Alex. And, I, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about because it, it hurts too much. It hurts too much, to, I think, to recognize um how much we mean to other people. And so we, we push it away. You know, we, we, we create a construct where that doesn't exist, where we can justify it. And we say things like what, what you say, like, it doesn't matter. Like you'll find somebody else. If, if you, if you really let that in, then, then you, you shouldn't really be taking it. You shouldn't be going to the mountains. Like you shouldn't be soloing. You know, I, I shouldn't be soloing. Like, you know, I mean, if you really accept that, it's like, you just shouldn't really be taking most of these risks. That's why it's hard to talk about risk, you know, because you're like, it's easy to be like, oh, I prepare, I mitigate, I make good choices. But then you still know in the back of your mind that there's always, there are always those risks that you can't prepare for. And, and like some things just happen. Or I mean, man, like just two weeks ago, I mean, with the, the birth of our daughter, you know, it's like she came out not breathing and it was all, and there was no real rhyme or reason for that. Uh, like there was no real cause. There was nothing that like we should have done differently. It's just like sometimes life just throws things at you and you're like, oh, geez. And you just have to have to deal i don't know i don't know what my point is it's just that like it's well, just it's hard to get past the randomness of it all that's life you know like you know no none of us are getting out of this alive as they say and yeah i think that the number of friends who i've had die in the mountains or die even not in the mountains whether it's cancer or whatever you know i'm 50 and i i have more than 50 friends that i've you know shared significant amount of time with they're gone you know there's a lot that's a lot of people that's not just a couple of people <laughs> like that's that's a small village right and it's just it's a it's a big it's a big big toll it's a big 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 hole Steve, do you think we've gotten better at talking about this stuff of, of not just like pushing things like, you know, people dying to the side where it's like we we've maybe realized that this is this is a traumatic thing. This is a real thing that our community goes through. These conversations didn't didn't happen. 20 years ago, for sure. And I think it's just a, a gradual thing, uh, evolution in the community. And yeah, I mean, I can remember really clearly the first time that I lost two close friends and I found out about it 
by reading Mountain Info and Mountain Magazine. <laughs> and it was basically nine months after the event. But they had died, uh, disappeared on a summit attempt on Kanchenjunga the previous fall. It was early in the morning. It was like seven. I can really remember the whole setup and the whole scene. It was, it was you know, it was like seven o'clock in the morning or even earlier. And I was drinking coffee. I was in this house that I shared with this other climber guy, a friend of mine, Doug. And the conversation was, you know, I felt, I just felt this like huge sadness, like this, just like uh, I was just like just destroyed by this news like because a man uh, a man and a woman maria frantar jose roseman who had been on that first expedition i was on in nanga parbat the conversation was just basically like finish your coffee and get over it like that was the, that was the conversation <laughs> like there was no making space for it there was no discussing it or thinking about it, it was just like, yeah, shit happens. Like, get over it. And by the way, we're going climbing today. Like, that was it. And I think it's important to, to have these conversations as a, as a community. Because, you know, of course there's randomness. If I am diagnosed with cancer tomorrow, that's probably something that I could not, that's probably due to my genetics or whatever, I'm, yeah. But I can choose whether to go climbing or not tomorrow. I mean, I'm actually going for a ski tour tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, I could choose not to do that, like, but I'm going. Um, and I'll trusting that I'm going to make good decisions up there and stay within my, you know, risk envelope. But I might not. And, but along the way, I want to have talked about it. I want to have talked about it with my friends. I want to have talked about it with my wife. I want to have talked about it with you guys. And I think that that's super important. Uh, I'm curious, like, you know, now that you've had this big shift, you're you're a businessman, you're running out of athlete, you've got these two little boys, you're living in Europe. Like, what do your days look like? In the past, we've talked a little bit about, like, uh, you know, the, a great day is going and skiing blue runs with, with your boys and hitting little jumps on the side. You know, it took a lot of work to detangle cutting edge alpinism in your life to get to that stage. And, and just, yeah. What's a perfect day look like these days? Well, I think it's only fair to say that there are some days where I actually absolutely hate it. Right. Like just like <laughs> Steve, you're supposed to sandbag Alex. Like everything <laughs> is easy, right? That's, that's what you got to tell him. Because you're up there like, and, and like these get my boys, like my younger ones, he's skiing in a diaper. Right, like, and he and he's not potty trained, so he could like, you know, I could have to deal with like a shitty diaper, like, you know, in a public, you know, and of course, and this year it's better, but last year like all the public restrooms were closed in Austria, so there wasn't even like any place to go because of COVID. They just like closed the restrooms, so then of course people were just you know going wherever they could. But <laughs> my point is that there are certainly days where. Uh, it's not fun at all. It's like, it's like super heinous and I, it's really hard to get through and I lose my shit and I'm just like, I, I'm not a good dad. You know, there's days like that for sure. 
And then there's also days where like I'm just really present with them and really connected to them and I'm just so connected to their joy and their love and their love for me and their love for just like having fun and I mean they're just classic boys in the sense I I really relate to them because I can watch them and know how that felt like I still remember like in my body I can feel that what they're feeling when I watch them sometimes and so some days are, are like that and, I, and everyone's in, in between well I I really appreciate the chat I I mean I'll have a lot to think about it's like uh yeah no it's it's nice to chat it's like there, there aren't that many people who are through it, you know, and who can have that kind of a chat. And so it's nice to, nice to get perspective on that kind of thing. And, and even fewer people who are through it and also quite thoughtful about it, you know, and so it's, it's good to get, uh, it's good to get some insight. You know, I think the, the thing that I want to say to, to you and to other climbers is I think that the, the most important thing is to survive it actually. That's the most important thing because you simply, I mean, you especially, but I mean, anyone listening to this, they just cannot, you could never underestimate the, the hole that you would leave in the world if you weren't here. I mean, you, Alex, you know, you Fitz, me, myself, I, I think that I qualify for that. But every everyone listening to that, and I say that having lost a lot of people in my life. And, you know, there's some big holes around me. Um, and I miss a lot of people very often. Do you think that even though you've you've stepped away from the very cutting edge alpinism, right? Does that mean you lose what you learned? Does that mean that you like learned all like all that stuff that that you gained and the learnings about yourself? Do you think you've lost that? Like, or or does that stay with you even after it's over? We as humans need to have challenge. We need to take risk to find out who we are. And not just to find out who we are, but to become somebody, to become who we are meant to be. And you can't know where courage and bravery live inside of you if you haven't accessed it before. How can you know? You don't know where to reach. And the whole process, it's, it's self-fulfilling in a way because you go, you seek out challenges, the challenges entail risk-taking, and then you have to live through this and you have to do your, and you're going to do your best because the chips are down you're going to kind of force yourself to find it and that's going to allow you to discover it and allowing yourself to discover it is going to allow yourself to know where that lives inside of you you know i can take myself back to so many pitches of climbing in the mountains especially that i did where it was just like there was absolutely no, no, no making mistakes. Mistakes were fatal. And I have a well-traveled pathway to that piece of me that is able to just like sort of slow down and, and do what I know I can do in, you know, highly dangerous situations where not only I'm going to die, but my partner's going to die if I screw up. 
And that completely changes my life. That completely changes who I am. Thanks, Steve, for taking the time to chat with us. We really appreciate it. To find out more about what Steve is up to, visit uphillathlete.com. It's pretty cool. Check it out. We will be back in two weeks with our finale. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Today's episode was written and edited by Evan Phillips and me, Fitzcahal, with additional editing and mixing by Matt Martin. Music today by Brennan O'Connell, Amy Stolzenbach, Cordelia Zars, and me. Additional production help from Austin Syadak, Lauren Delaney Miller, and Anya Miller. Our executive producers are Becca Cahal and Lisey Hendricks for Duct Tape Them Beer and Jonathan Redsick and Ben Endy for RxR Sports. Thanks for listening.